Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. In this episode, we are joined by educational neuroscientist Dr. Jared Cooney-Horvath. This time, we discuss the importance of sleep and its role in learning, what actually happens in our brain during sleep, why sleep deprivation is harmful to learning, and if there's any truth in the morning lark and the night owl. So let's join me, Elliot, Gaia, Nikita and Sophie, who are medical students, and Lisa, who is a lecturer in medical education. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing? Hello. Hi. Really? Nice to be back with you yes. guys again. Yes. Yeah. And we've got a, a very special guest today. So we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Jared Cooney-Horbat, uh, an educational neuroscientist who is currently working at the University of Melbourne on, in Australia, from where he joined us today. Jared's research and work focuses on translating what is understood about the brain and mind to education and how we can use these insights practically to improve learning. So Jared, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you again with us today. No, thank you guys for having me back on. I had a great time the first time around, so excited to see what we uncover this time. (laughs) So uh, today's episode is gonna focus on uh, sleep and why it's important. So let's kick it off with a a question about, straight to Jared. Um, What happens to our brain uh, when we sleep? Oh my goodness. Um, For a while, we thought it shut down, but it doesn't. Turns out that sucker keeps chugging away just the same as if you were awake. It just kind of flips into different modes. Um, So at at its most base, and we can go into detail a little bit more in a bit here, but at its base, we think your brain has kind of two things it has to do when you sleep. The first is it has to reset. So you can assume your brain, right? It's full of neurons that are all firing. It's got glial cells. Everything's talking to everything. There's neurotransmitters getting splashed around. When you wake up, your brain is relatively clean. And throughout the day, it just gets more and more and more and more chaotic. Um, So we think the primary function of sleep is to wash all that stuff out, reset all that stuff so that you can start again fresh the next day. Um, And this is why we say... One, and we, we debate sleep all the time. It's one of those things that we know you got to do, but we're still debating on what the heck purpose it serves. But one thing we're clear on is if you don't sleep, you will die. Once you hit about 72 hours without sleep, you'll start hallucinating just because it gets so noisy and messy up there and your body will try and knock you out. But there are some people who still have, it's called genetic familial um, insomnia, I believe. They still, even when their body's kicking in, they can't sleep and they will pass away. That's just name of the game. So step one, it has to clean your brain out. That's its primary function. Step two then is while it's cleaning out your brain, it's trying to consolidate your memories. What have you learned that's important? Let's keep this. When we're washing out the rest of the brain, let's maintain these important ideas. So primary stage, we've got to reset your brain so you can survive another day. Secondary stage, we've also got to lock down your new learning so that when you live another day, you can draw upon the past to make it a little bit easier for yourself. And I think that's probably the more fun fun aspect of sleep is the memory consolidation stuff. Yeah. So, so do these things happen in different stages of sleep? Because we know that you've got NREM sleep and REM sleep. So what happens in each of those stages? Yeah. So we kind of, when we go to sleep, we start and stop in REM. Um, 
And there's a ton of debate on what the heck is going on there. So let's just put REM sleep. So for the listeners who don't know, that's rapid eye movement. So if you ever see someone sleeping and you can, their eyes are closed, but you just see their eyes darting behind their lids, that's REM sleep. So we'll, we'll save that for a second, put that on the side. Once you get past REM sleep, you then go through typically three stages of sleep. So we'll just call it deep one, deep two, deep three. And at each stage, we think something different is happening. So deep one, that's when we think you're consolidating muscle memories for that day. So this is one of the reasons we think like for a while, people said, oh, we only have one memory. Now we're realizing, no, we got tons of different memories and they all work differently. So this concept of muscle memory, of procedural learning, of skills, of actual movements, physical things, we think that stuff gets locked down in deep one. So this is one of the reasons why if you ever see a dog, my, my dog is the funniest at this. She'll go to sleep, she'll get past REM, and then her whole body goes haywire for about five to 10 minutes during the first sleep cycle. And that's the muscles trying to wash themselves and relive that memory so they can lock those muscle memories down. You then dip into deep two, and that's when we think you do your primary, what we call declarative memory locking. So that's when you'll consolidate facts, ideas, episodic memories. That's the memory that we typically mean when we say memory. So stage two is when that gets locked down. And stage three is primarily when the brain's cleaning. We don't think a lot of con consolidations going on there. We think what's happening at that stage is your brain is pulling itself back. It's cleaning out the free radicals. It's washing out all the extra neurotransmitters and it's pulling back all the extra synapses that you made during that day. So this is arguably the most important stage of sleep. Um, so a lot of people in, excuse me, I, I hope this doesn't get too boring or tricky, but so think about the brain in its plasticity, right? The brain, the brain changes. That's how we learn. That's how we think that's its job. Turns out there are two different forms of plasticity. One is additive. So that's your long-term potentiation. And one is subtractive. That's your long-term depression. Most people only think about the additive. Let's get new information. Let's get new ideas. Let's get new concepts. And additive is wonderful <laughs> until you realize that if all you did was add, the brain would eventually just mush out of your ears. There's just no more space <laughs> for it to do. So it does a lot of that subtraction during that stage three when you're asleep. So if you can assume when you're awake, the brain is adding, adding, adding. When you're asleep, it just starts pulling it back and says, let's reset. Let's go back to homeostasis, back to normal. And during that reset, then what consolidation is doing is it's saying, as we're resetting, taking all this stuff away, let's maintain this memory. Ooh, this seemed important. So don't take away those new synapses. Oh, hey, that was worthwhile. Don't remove those. So at the end of the day, your brain is kind of resetting to normal, but it's trying to hold on to those important bits. And that's what we'll call memory consolidation. Yeah, I think that you, you maybe feel the effects of that because you often see things clearer the, the, the next day after sleeping on something, if you were thinking about a problem or something. And then when yeah. you wake up the next morning, you see it clear it and you can think of it like, you know, the, the rubbish that has been cleared away and the important things have been strengthened by the additive process of in, in the brain. Boom. And that's the, exactly it. It's it washed away the dirt, threw away the rubbish and you, whatever nuggets of gold remain, congrats. You don't have to think through it anymore. It's clear in your head. The trick is then to recognize it or the it's good and bad. There are certain markers that will tell your brain, okay, this is important to hang on to. And this is one of the things we think emotion does is emotion serves as a marker for certain events during the day so that when the brain is wiping out and cleaning itself off, 
it says, oh, this one is emotional. Let's not quite wipe that away yet. Let's try and consolidate that and pay attention to that. Because you can't, you only sleep so much at night, you can't consolidate every memory. The scary thing is to recognize that you will forget about 70% of everything you learn every day. There's no way 100% of your day can be marked with important, ooh, remember me, remember me. About 30% of it can get consolidated, about 70% will get wiped away. And that's when you start to recognize that sometimes, so like if you're thinking about a problem as you go to bed, that's a sure sign that that's going to get a marker. You're going to consolidate whatever you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. But if something happened in the middle of the day that you're like, ooh, that's important. I want to hang on to it. There's a chance you might not. So it doesn't, it's not a foolproof method. And sometimes things we learn just get cleared out of there. And that's one of those, another reason why repetition becomes so important. Form, give yourself multiple chances to form memories because we just don't know how much of it's just going to get wiped out when you go to sleep that night. I'm just thinking for, for a lot of students at the moment who are coming up for, for exams, uh, there is a, a tendency, isn't there, to, to pull all-nighters or to not get enough sleep in, in the face of trying to revise as much as possible. And the point that you made that there's, there's several levels to sleep, isn't there, yeah. that cover each type of kind of memory from procedural to, to, to declarative. And how long, I mean, presumably you've got to be in a form of sleep for a certain amount of time to hit those, those crucial points. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing. And the really important thing for students is, so let's say the kind of information you're going to be memorizing or trying to learn for exams, that's the declarative stuff. That's stage two sleep. So when you sleep, so you go through these kind of sleep cycles, these 90 minute windows of sleep where you drop through deep one, deep two, deep three but you don't spend the same amount of time in each stage during each cycle. So the first couple cycles, it, let's just say a perfectly normal day. You slept eight hours last night. You lived 16 hours a day. You're going to get eight hours tonight. Congratulations. Your first two 90 minute sleep cycles are almost going to exclusively be deep three. The first thing your brain does is say, clean this stuff out. So memory uh, consolidation really doesn't even kick in till about, three and a half, four hours into your sleep. So this is the trick. And now the, the scary thing is you can keep extending that. So let's say you stay up a couple nights and you, and you didn't get eight hours of sleep last night. You only got four. Well, now your brain's going to need to catch up on that extra four and lay down this new four. So you might not even start really consolidating memories till hour five or six of sleep tonight. So you've got this issue where the less you sleep, the more you have to spend in deep level three. Your brain will say, we, if we don't clean it out, doesn't matter what memories you got, you will die. So let's clean, clean, clean. And you can end up losing an entire night. If anyone who's ever a good example of this, anyone who's ever traveled, so you had like a 24 hour or 32 hour, or 48 hour flight and you fly somewhere and then you have a 10 hour layover, then you fly somewhere else and you have a 10 hour layover. Those sleeps after 48 hours of being a week, uh, of being awake, you're out. No one can move you. Your wife can't wake you up. The dog ain't waking you up. You are dead to the world, but you're not going to remember a ton because that dead to the world is your brain saying we need to survive. So sorry, we're going to be staying in deep three the whole time. You'll wake up having spent very little time in stage two sleep, which means you might not remember a lot of that trip. A lot of it's just gone because your brain was like, sorry, that was less important than just making sure you were healthy tonight. So if you think about that kind of jet lag sensation you get, that first sleep after a huge 48-hour trip, 
that's what happens when you start cramming way too much. Let's say you spend an entire night a week where all you do is study and maybe you get two, three hours of sleep because you need to study a little bit more. You're killing your chance to lock memories down. And at the end of that, if you're lucky, you can walk into a test if it just happens to be right at the end of that and pass it. But if that test is a week later, you'll you'll lose so much. A lot of that effort is just mindless effort. It's going nowhere. So you'd be better off going to sleep starting again tomorrow. Say, you know, you have a couple of days where you study during the night. Is there any way that you can can make the sleep up the, the following week? Say you've got a test in two weeks. Say, oh, I really need to work hard for the next few days. You cut back yeah. on your sleep. Absolutely. So we call it, um, what's the official term? Sleep debt recovery, I think is the term people use, but it's, it's exactly that is you can catch up on sleep later. And so, and so you see this a lot in high school, really when, when the circadian rhythm. So if you're a teenager, you guys remember this back in high school, your circadian rhythm goes way out of whack. So you get a lot less sleep just cause you don't even get tired till about 11 or midnight. Um, so what we see is those kids, because they still have to wake up at 6 a.m. to go to school, they get less. They just accumulate sleep debt during the week. They only get six hours, then five, and then maybe six. And what you'll see is on Saturday, boom, they'll sleep for 12 hours to try and make all that up. So there is a way to accumulate it and then then pay that debt back. The problem is, is when you pay the debt back, so what you're doing is, let's say there's a queue of memories that want to get consolidated. So you have 100% of memories in the queue when you go to sleep tonight. You can assume 70% of them are just going to get kicked out of the queue. 30% are going to be consolidated. But you didn't get enough sleep. So the brain will hold on to about that 30%. It'll take the new 100% from the next day, cut off 70, add it to this. And you can get a sleep queue where the brain will hold on to information that it still deems relevant and needs to lock down. But once you get far enough along, A, it'll start dropping things out of your queue. So if you don't get that catch-up sleep soon enough, you'll just start dropping information from days before. And two, even when you get that sleep catch-up, you might not spend enough time in there to consolidate all that information. So eventually the queue just gets weeded out and not everything gets stuck. So yeah, if you, if you, if you have had a rough week or a rough month of sleep, yes, you can make up for it. But it's not going to be as beneficial. It's You're going to lose yeah. a lot more information than if you had a nightly kind of fix with that that good sleep stuff following on from what you said about the you know a teenagers sort of their rhythm being shifted a bit and not getting to sleep but you know a little later for example like 11 ish at night mm -hmm. generally speaking there's this concept of of morning larks and, and night owls and I was wondering whether there's an actual biological basis for something like this because if there is then it's just really unfair that working schedules are set so early for people. So yep. No, you, you're absolutely that? right. There are people you can say, and you'll know this yourself. People have their windows where they are at their cognitive best, where all the gears are firing and like, this is when I do my best work. We don't know. We know it's true. We, we know from psychology that it is very real, that if somebody says I'm a night owl and then you let them work at night, they will give you much better work than if you force them to work during the day or the morning how that's tied to the circadian rhythm, we're not sure yet. So we think that's probably more tied to metabolic rhythms. So you have a bunch of different rhythms going on in your body. Um, and so we think that must be tied to something else, but we really don't know the mechanisms yet for it. But with that said, we do know it's a real thing. So if you do your best work at night, sweet, organize your schedule. So that night is your lockdown time where I'm going to put in my 90 minutes, two hours, whatever the heck it's going to be tonight, hopefully shorter than that, but whatever you got to do, and I'm going to let myself sleep in. Or if you're a morning person like me, 
<laughs> honest to God, uh, five days a week, I'm in bed by 8.30. And that, that's purely that's, because... That's like Sophie. I, <laughs> yeah. Similar to Sophie. We, I, man, it's it's so nerdy. I lucked out. My wife is very similar. So it's so nerdy that my the rest of my family would be like, do you guys want to come over for dinner? Like, yeah, of course. What time? Seven. Oh, no, no. We're going to eat around 4.30 or 5. I'll see you guys later. We're that push but it's because we want to get up early i get my best work done between like six and nine in the morning so i i have everything set that i might miss out on some of those nighttime adventures but my god i get so much good work done in the morning then by we're going to be keeping you up late tonight jared i know this is (laughs) sorry problem is no this is good i actually i I have a lot of things going on with with the uk now so my whole sleep cycle is going to be out of whack but i'll still force myself to get up early that's what I, i will say this if you're worried about your sleep cycle getting out of whack, because it can at university, I think you guys are in a safe enough spot where because of the pressures of your your academic workload, you're just never going to have that freedom to be like, mm, I'm going to sleep till noon today. Mm, I'm just not going to wake up today. I'm going to play video <laughs> games all day. But for the other kids who are listening who might have that option to play a little bit more with their time, if you worry your sleep cycle, because it, it will stay malleable. If you can keep pushing your sleep cycle as far as you want. I have a, my 17, no, he's 18 now. My nephew uh, sleeps all day and is awake all night because his parents never rein that stuff in. Mm -hmm. So if you're worried your sleep cycle is getting really out of whack and you got to control it, don't worry about your sleep time. Set your wake up time. Make sure you wake up at the same time every day. If you force yourself to get up at 6, 37, whatever it's going to be every day, watch as your sleep time just starts to normalize itself on the front end. You'll start to go to bed earlier and earlier to match that. So if you if you need to control it, we always say the wake up time is how you start to control your sleep clock. Whatever you set that as, everything else will kind of adjust. I was gonna say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that because say if you go to bed at 1 a.m. because you're trying to finish a project, say, and I say if I wake up 7 a.m. every day, like I personally find six hours of sleep is not enough for me. Like I need between seven and eight hours. So then what I would do, so if it was a weekend, I would, so 1 a.m. at 7 or 8, that would be yeah. like at 8 or 9 um, a.m. So I would make sure I get my seven hours. I don't think I could, maybe I'll try. I don't think I could actually change. No, um, you're change totally that. fine. See, you're playing yeah. your clock perfectly. So yeah. in your sense, you're not staying up to 1 a.m. every night. You're doing it because you have a reason. Yeah. And so what you're doing is adjusting your wake-up time to suit that reason. Yeah. You have a very clear purpose for it. Yeah. There are people out there who have no clear purpose for it. And so they go to bed at one o'clock every night. Why? Because "Mm, why not? Then they go to bed at two every night. Why? Because "Mm, why not? (laughs) Those are the people who, when you're really, when it becomes an everyday thing and your whole cycle goes out of whack, if you need to bring it back in your case, on a case by case basis, you're totally fine. Oh, okay. That's good. (laughs) So so (laughs) safe. This whole idea of um, the eight hour mark then, is that also... Is that is that true as well? Because there's so many things that people say. So you mentioned, obviously you talked about the whole uh, night owl thing being absolutely true. This whole early to bed, early to rise thing that we've t- traditionally been taught maybe is not, it doesn't work as much now. And then even with this eight hour mark thing, I don't know whether that's even, is yeah. that the target? No, it's, 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 it's a good rule of thumb, but there's nothing really about it. We do know when you're a teenager. So in, during adolescence, um, you need a lot more sleep than anyone else. So we tend to see adolescents require at least eight to nine hours of sleep. We typically say nine, almost none of them get it. But that's just because in addition to the brain clearing itself out, how much growth the body is going through in terms of, of 
with the hormones and the sexual stuff and the bones growing, everything is changing so much during adolescence that they need a ton more sleep. It's the same thing with babies. Babies need a bucket ton of sleep. Why? Because their bodies are changing so rapidly that they just, during sleep, that's when the system can work best. Outside of adolescence and being a baby, we have no clue. We've, we've found people who can have as little as four hours of sleep and be fine. And some people who need as much as 10 hours before they can be functional. So we, we say eight is just kind of a cool rule of thumb, but it's like saying you need eight glasses of water a day. Why? I don't know. It's just something somebody said one day. So there's no truth to it. So it sounds good, but now, nah. so if you're, if you're one of those people, lucky people who only need like five hours of sleep, go for it. And if you're one of those people like me, I'm around seven and a half to eight that I need sweet. If you need 10 sweet, just build your schedule around what you need. Can you have too much sleep? It's, it's one of these weird things. And to be honest, this is something I haven't studied much. So I would love to dig into it, but I do know there's a ton of research that says once you oversleep, you actually, the system becomes more worn down. So you end up being sleepier if you sleep too much than if you would have just gotten up at a normal time. So you end up kind of killing, not totally ruining, but your cognitive abilities on that next day just seem to diminish. So, and I, but I don't know what the mechanism is and I know someone will know. I'm just not that guy. So I need to go dig into the research. <laughs> That's what I love about research. It's right there. But I promise you there's, so yes, there's absolutely something where once you over push it, the brain starts to spend too much time in REM sleep. So REM sleep, you start and stop in this REM sleep. There are multiple debates about what's going on here. The primary thing, the one thing we do know is during REM sleep, that's when you're having those dreams that you do remember. So we think you're dreaming all night, but you only start remembering those dreams that you have during REM, which means during REM, your memory system is kicking back online. It's almost as if your consciousness is there with you as you're going through sleep. So it's a very unique spot. And now there's debates as to what we dream. Some people think what we're doing is stripping emotion away from memories during REM. That's when you decouple emotions from facts so that you can lay down the facts and then bring the emotions back on later and not be kind of hogtied by them. Other people are totally opposite. They think that's where you're tying your emotions to your new memories. And that's why most REM sleep, the dreams are really highly emotional because the brain isn't trying to decouple it. It's trying to recouple it. In essence, we don't know what the hell is going on, but we do know the more you sleep, past your limit, the more time you spend in that REM sleep. So you kind of just live, you're not even in deep one, two or three anymore. The brain's like, I'm fine. So you just live in this gray zone of confusion. Some people love it. They like, they meditate to get into that kind of theta state. But for the most part, it just becomes wildly confusing after a while. And and you just, and I think you guys remember, you, you recognize this. You start having really weird yet vivid dreams and then you really can't get out of them. And then you almost feel nauseated when you finally do kind of snap yourself out of it and force yourself to wake up. You almost, everything just feels off. Mm. So too much time in REM sleep seems to have like a counter purpose. I don't know. And again, I'll have to dive into the lit to see what it is, but it, we, we know it's, it leads to sluggish cognition and it does something with memory, but what that is, we're going to have to figure out. I've found that I've had vivid dreams when I nap, like, especially last week, I was so knackered. And I, just, yeah. I was in my flat and I was like, guys, I'm just going to go and have an hour's nap. 
have the nap, come back so groggy. And I was like, guys, I had a dream about all of you. It was so vivid. And they were like, Guy, what's wrong? What's wrong? When you take a nap, most people, unless you get that like sweet 90 minute siesta like they do in Spain every day. So they can go through a whole cycle. They're used to it. But people like us, we've never done naps in Australia or the US. When we nap, we just sit in that REM state, that like half awake, half asleep, and just things get weird. Things get weird in that state. And then I regret it afterwards as well. I'm like, I napped to kind of shut my body down, but more, it kind of woke up and I just feel groggy afterwards. So yeah. That's it's, it's I, I, I know the research on napping is really good. Like yeah. hey, if you can nap, go for it. Yeah. But I'll be, I'm be honest. I'm with you personally. I've never found any benefit. Anytime I've done it, I've been unable to sleep that night. Like everything just gets so out of whack and uncomfortable yeah, that it's just yeah. like, ooh, wish I wouldn't have done that. So I regret it every time. <laughs> so if you don't need it, maybe if we grow up with it, it'd be a thing. But I don't think if you didn't grow up with it, use it if you have to. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you. Oh, I don't yeah. see the point yet. Yeah, you. See, I thought that dreaming was impossible during napping um, because mm-hmm. it's never happened to me. So it, it clearly must depend on how sleep deprived you are, what what stage of sleep you're going into, how long you're napping. How often do you, do you remember your dreams generally? Like every night or? Uh, every, maybe every couple nights. Okay. So it turns out, so everyone has kind of their different dream thresholds as to what they're going to remember. So there's a very good chance you're, you're dreaming. You're just not forming a deep memory for it. If you, if you ever want to, so it's, it turns out that's an odd skill that you can develop. Like people can learn how to remember their dreams. It just takes Every, every morning when you wake up or right after a nap, you have to immediately think, what the heck did I, did I just do? And start writing that stuff down. Yeah. Do that for one or two weeks. All of a sudden, you can remember huge chunks of your dream. So I'd be curious to see if, you, if it, you're just one of those people who never really, like I'm kind of like with you, is that unless it's a super vivid one, I don't remember much. I know they're there, but I just don't care enough to yeah, undergo the true. dream memory skill enhancement. I just don't care. I, I actually, figure the brain's going to do what it's going to do. I actually used to write my dreams down <laughs> when I yeah. was like... Maybe, uh, maybe that's why, why you're dreaming when you're napping these days. Yeah, because I, I had mm. this whole obsession. I was like, I wanted to learn how to lucid dream. I know it's slightly deviating, but... And I wanted to see if there were connections between my daily activities. So in black pen, I would write down my dream and then um, I would analyse it in my green pen and then I'd be sitting there trying to find connections. And it was so actually exciting because I thought... When you go to sleep, there's so much brain activity that yeah. you can't really express sometimes and just be writing it down. It was just kind of therapeutic. And did you notice that you it became easier and you, dreams became like pretty cake to remember after a um, while? Yeah. And like I'd write like I had a little like A6 notebook and I'd write like a few like good pages and that. So, yeah. It was do you cool. still do that now or have you since like kind of? No, I mean, I do wake up and text people. I'm like, oh, I dreamt about you last night. They're like, Gaia, we haven't spoken in a while. What are you doing? <laughs> Sorry. But, my brain yeah. brought you up must be important yeah, like, exactly. who is this who's texting me <laughs> yeah exactly like, I, I haven't I, seen you in decades yeah. oh i love dreams i love the dream discussion yeah. well so, so here's a good if you tie it back to memory so you can assume what is memory consolidation you're locking down new information remember your brain never it, it doesn't hold on to isolated facts it just doesn't care any new information has to be tied to some old information so we think that a, one theory about what's crazy about dreams, the reason why they're so wonky is you could be laying down something you learned today. I saw a green car today and my brain's like, sweet, remember that green car. 
but it chooses to tie it to something totally weird. Like, remember that boyfriend you had in third grade? Green car is going to be in that network over here. Why? I don't know. Maybe that person had a green car. Who knows? But the brain decided I'm going to tie this to this. That's why a lot of memories are combinations of new stuff and then really weird old stuff in combinations that you'd never would have put together. But that's just a good sign that your brain is trying to tie these things into a schema to say this all belongs together. So that if you activate one memory in the future, you get all these other things that come with it, including that weird wonky boyfriend from third grade. <laughs> Poor Jimmy. Jimmy McGee. Ah, oh, he was a good one. <laughs> Ath class crush. <laughs> um, kind of off like piste as well, but I, um, just out of curiosity, like I act out a lot of my dreams. Like I've had like recently when I've had a dream, I've told these guys about it, but I've been scrubbed in and I'll wake up like this. And um, <laughs> or like the other day, my partner had to wake me up because I was climbing on the bed and like reaching yeah. up the ceiling. Is that kind of like deep one muscle memory or is that more like weird REM kind of? So you, just- you, could, you could be in one or the other. You can be in deep one REM where you're, or deep one procedural where you're just reliving things. So typically what happens is, so you, you've got a little node pretty much right at the base of your, where the brain becomes the spinal column. So right above the medulla oblongata. So this is like the last port of call before you hit spinal cord. You have the pons. This is the part of the brain. So pons is French for pont bridge. So we we think this is kind of like your sleep bridge. When you go to sleep, your pons activates. And essentially what it's doing is it's trapping the signals between your brain and your body. So if you're, when you're dreaming, when you're in deep one and you're doing muscle memory, your brain is firing off as though you were kicking a ball, as though you were scrubbing in, as though you were climbing a ladder. But those messages never get to your body because the pawns just says, nope, sorry, you're out. This is why, and you can feel at night your pawns kick on, is um, if you ever get that hip, we call it a hypnagogic jerk. So you're, you're right when you first start falling asleep and then you have that big jerk moment, where it's like, what the hell was that? Like maybe you had a dream that a ball was coming at you and you had to like, whoa, that's your body responding to being cut off from its normal signals. So as the pons kicks on, your body starts to go really lax. And <laughs> typically your body will only really be lax like that under two circumstances. One, if you're floating or two, if you're falling. And for whatever reason, the brain never picks floating. It always picks falling. And so it's sends out a huge jolt to say, grab something, do something. And that's that one big jolt. It's a safety mechanism because it thinks you're falling. Weird. Anyway, most people can then sleep through that and they're fine. But in your case, <laughs> sometimes the pons goes haywire and it kind of opens up. And this is one of the, the causes of sleepwalking and sleep movement, where now if you're in, in deep one or in REM acting out motions, those signals get to your muscles. And even though you're out, your body's like, sweet, thank you. And it'll just start moving in tandem. And here's where things get fun is very rarely it happens, but very rarely do people get seriously injured when they're sleepwalking. They can interact with their environment. So typically when you're in that state, I'd be curious to see if your eyes are open. You still take in information and the thalamus still processes all of it and then make sure that, oop, there's a lamp in front of you, walk around it. Oop, there's a door, open that, don't just walk into it. So you're still interacting with the world. It's just, you're not, it's your thalamus doing it. Have you guys, have you guys had to study blind sight yet? No, oh, perfect. This is, there are some blind people who can see. 
and they don't know they can see. So you, you send one of these blind people through an obstacle course. Like you, we used to do this in our, in our lab all the time. You have a long hallway and you just put random things like a slide projector in the middle and then a box of files over here. So they'll, if, and you just say, just walk straight for me and they won't trip over anything. They'll go right around all these obstacles. And when you ask them, you say, how the heck did you do that? They'll say, do what? As far as they knew, they were walking in a straight line, but they certainly weren't. This is so blind sight. It only works when the blindness occurs in the visual cortex. So long as the eyeballs and the thalamus start working. So the thalamus in your brain, it's my favorite brain part. All of your senses, except for smell, go there first. Everything goes to the thalamus. The thalamus is the thing that then says, okay, vision, you go back here. Sound, you're going to go over here. Faces, you're going to go over here. Uh, all the, it sorts everything out, which means it has the power to preempt you. So, so in these blind sight patients, they're blind due to injury back here. So they can't consciously see but the eyes still work and the thalamus still works. So when they walk down a hall, as soon as they get to an obstacle, the thalamus takes over the body and says, no, we'll just go around this. That's fine. Oh, look out. Don't worry. I'll just control your legs and put you over here. They don't know they did it. Some of them confabulate. They'll just make up stories about things that they were thinking. But that's, that's what tends to happen when you're sleepwalking is the thalamus is still functioning. So it's going to make sure you don't ever really get injured. It's going to say, no, you're in the kitchen. Go grab a fork. Cool. It knows what's going on. It's just totally out of your control. Which leads to a very interesting question. There's no answer to this one, but why the hell are we necessary then? Seems like the thalamus can handle this. If, if survival was the only thing we needed, the thalamus is, does a pretty damn good job of controlling the system without us. It doesn't really need us. So why <laughs> then do we emerge from the system? What function are we meant to serve? That just makes me question my whole existence. <laughs> I'm an existential like, crisis now. Yeah, I'm like, if, if a tiny structure in my body can do everything for me, why do I have to? Oh, I don't even know. Well, so now extend it. I was. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually got to write an article about this. It's. It, I never thought anyone would be interested in it, but an, a magazine asked me to. It's, it's called the Mind Brain Problem in Education. So most of my work is in learning and education, right? And they said, "Are is your mind your brain?" And by all means, no. God, I don't think. I think outside of the 5% of really strict neuroscientists, like, and I wouldn't even call them neuroscientists. I would call them just pop science writers like Dawkins and Pinker in them. No, we've never thought that you were just your brain. Whoever you are, you emerge from your brain, from your body, and from your culture. You don't exist in here any more than you exist in here, any more than you exist over there. You're of all of this, but you ain't in any of this stuff. So somehow the... In, and I think the thalamus, the blind sight in sleepwalking shows that your body can handle itself. It doesn't need us. So we are an emergent property through a much wider interaction, which means we serve a much wider purpose than just that pure survival mechanism. There is something, we are part of something else and meant to think something else. What that is, I don't know. There is no answer to that. But it's just cool to start to think that, yeah, no, your, your brain can handle this machine on it doesn't need us yet we're still here so we must not just be a biological thing we must be an interactive emergent property of a larger system i think that justifies that like we need to make sure we look after our bodies well if it's doing so much like it already does so much just like on a homeostatic level just yeah. regulating your body but in this sense um I'm going to make sure I sleep well and eat well, we you know, praise. 
yeah. what we call a neurocentrism. It's we we have a love affair with the brain, and we we forget that the brain is just a hunk. Of, it, it is literally no different than anything else in your body. Your brain okay. is not different than your gut, than your heart, than your lungs, than your knee. It's made of all the same stuff. So when we narrow our focus to just the brain behavior, we miss a lot. Of, and I I'm totally guilty of this. I treated my body like hell growing up. Why? Because all I needed to make sure was that I was mentally fit. Well, yeah. now your mental fitness is you, the you that emerges, the body is part of you. So once that starts going haywire, watches your mental, the you that em- your mind starts to go haywire too. And now we've seen, I mean, God, look at, <laughs> this is going to get trippy. I love these, these kind of, this is why I like talking to you guys. We get to go on funny, <laughs> funny tangents. So people say, okay, you're nothing but your brain because the brain is the most complex thing in the universe, right? We got what? 85 billion neurons, one quadrillion synapses, anywhere between, I think it's 10 to the 1,400 combinations that each neuron can have in terms of its communication system, which means number of atoms in the galaxy, 10 to the 80. Number of possible patterns per neuron in your brain, 10 to the 1,400. It's the most ridiculously complex thing ever. This is why people tend to say, that's you. You are nothing but the working of this thing. You're hidden in there somewhere. Till you start to recognize there are tons of people out there that don't have that kind of brain. So let's say, so on this phone call, just looking at the six of us, there will likely be a difference in brain size of anywhere from 40 to 50%. If we could all measure our brains, some of us will be down around 1,000. Some will be at about 1,500 cubic cubic uh, it centimeters. Individually, we're wildly different. Strip it back. Hemispherectomies. How many people do we take half of their brain out? Quite frequently. How many of them are totally normal? Pretty much all of them. Keep going. Hydrocephalus. There are human beings in this world that only have 5% of their neurons. The rest of their brain is water. And we only found those people because they were sick from some other disease. And we scanned their brain and said, oh, by the way, you don't have a brain. Yet they're totally, they have a complete and utter mind with almost no brain. This is the kind of thing that shows you the brain is not special. It's cool. It mediates a lot of stuff, but it ain't essential. And the body seems to carry a huge amount of that weight. And and our social, our environmental culture seems to carry a whole lot of that weight on who we are. So if all we do is focus on the brain, it's to our own detriment. Your your stomach, your heart, your friends, your culture, your family, all of that stuff is equally important when it comes to this. It's just so hard to think about. It's so much easier just to say, oh, <laughs> it's in this part of your brain. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see you later. <laughs> there's a much wider, I know this is weird for a neuroscientist to say, but there's a much wider picture. There's a much more integrated picture that all of this plays into. That's so good. That's mad, isn't it? My mind is just blown by all of that but I love it um okay so we went off an amazing tangent there but just getting back on track slightly um obviously we're going to be doctors in the future hopefully um doctors especially junior doctors are known to kind of have a particularly erratic work and sleep schedule just by the nature of the job how do you think that this can manifest in their performance at work from the data we see highly negatively, the good news is a lot of, of residencies and programs like you guys are in are starting to try and account for this because up to even 20 years ago, it was just, it was almost like a fraternity system where it was, we had to go through that three years of hell. 
you're going to have to go through it too. But what we tend to see in that three years of hell is a lot of mistakes are made. A lot of what we thought was being learned isn't. So a lot of things that people like, oh, I learned that during my residency. No, most of them learn it on their job post-residency. It's almost as if a lot of the learning just goes right out the window. So what they really take from just those crazy periods are just an ability to push yourself to some sort of extreme, which might be meaningful later in your life as a doctor, if you ever hit a really extreme moment. But for the most part, it wasn't great for learning. It wasn't great for cognition. So good news is a lot of programs are starting to pull back and make it a little more. You only have an eight to 12 hour shift and then you have to have 24 off type of thing. But if you find yourself in a program that's not like that, yeah, prepared, it's everything's going to be foggy. It's very similar to right after you have a kid. There was, we always said it was kind of a myth, but now we know it's not. You have baby brain for about six months, men and women, fathers and mothers. It's, it's just noise because the kids aren't sleeping. Your sleep cycle is totally out of whack. Most people don't remember almost anything from that time. And if they do, it's only the miserable stuff. And that's the problem with sleep. So if, if you, if you get into one of those programs, do what they've done for the last 50 years, suck it up, hold your breath and recognize that it's going to be bad for your learning, bad for your cognition, bad for your relationships. And hopefully you can try your best to push them in a better direction. And if you make it through, do your best once you're past that to feedback and say, we need to change how that worked. Don't turn it into the frat system where, Hey, I was hazed in this way. So I'm going to haze the next group. Nope. We can do it better. And a lot of us are, but some of us still are kind of working around the edges. And just um, kind of wrapping up from what we've been talking about, like the different aspects of sleep, what is your top recommendation for students to develop a good sleep routine? Yeah. So start with just awareness, just spend, don't try and set it in stone yet. Spend about one month doing nothing but taking notes. What time did I go to bed? What time did I wake up? How did I feel this day? When did I get my best work done this day? Just take field notes for a month. And you could even have almost like one of those time management calendars where you have the entire day chunked up into 30 minute sections. So if you're doing time management, what you do is you go through and say, during this section, I was doing emails during this section, I was doing study and you just color code it. And then a month later you see, okay, I'm doing way too much of this. I can cut this out. Oh, I don't have enough of this. Once you can visualize it, it becomes a much easier. So just do the kind of same thing with your sleep. Am I every 30 minutes Just say, am I tired? Am I sleepy? Am I working well? Whatever it's got to be for you. After a month of observation, then you'll have a pretty clear sense. When am I doing my best work? And then start to organize around that. If you're a night owl, sweet. You might not be getting to bed till midnight. And like you said, hey, if I get only seven hours of sleep or less than seven, I'm not going to be good. Yeah. Midnight to seven. That's what you got to start doing. Mm-hmm. Set your wake up time and then just try and start diving around that. So I'd love to say everyone should go to bed early and wake up early, but really it's going to be up to you. And the best way to do it is just get really conscious over the next month, pay attention. And by the end of that, you'll know exactly what you should be doing. You'll find your own patterns. Just most of us don't pay attention most of the time. Yeah, it does. And also because we're coming to the end of 2020, like for people who are listening, that could be their new kind of goal for 2021. So we've come to the final part of our show, our recommendations. Uh, I believe you've got a, a recommendation for us, Jared. I do. And this is going to go kind of tangential, but I think you guys are going to love it. It's a book <laughs> called Fringology. Why is this good? Because we're talking about sleep today. One of the chapters, so the whole point of this is this guy looks at scientific research on the edge of certain fields to say how far is it being pushed. And one of the chapters is on dun, 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 lucid dreaming. <gasps> 
And it is one of the best explanations, like dives into that concept that I, I, I have read. We've, we've come, it's the book is a little old. It must be about like a decade old. So we've come a little bit further since then, but the way he outlines it and how we discovered, so he outlines how we discovered lucid dreaming. So human beings, we've known that it was a thing forever, but science didn't recognize it. Science refused to believe until like maybe the mid seventies, I think it was, could have even been the late seventies. But the point is the paradigm was you are nothing but your brain. And if your brain is asleep and we can measure that with EEG, then by definition, you must be asleep too. It is impossible to be consciously aware if your brain is asleep because the two things, consciousness and brain are identical. And this book looks at the research that broke that thinking. And it is some of the coolest most accidental it's like the guy who invented the slinky didn't want to do it he just knocked us <laughs> it's the same thing with lucid dreaming no one meant to to solve it yeah. or to to dig into it and it just happened and it was like oh we got to change our paradigm we've also got some further recommendations uh the first one is why we sleep by matthew walker which i think a lot of people cite as changing their perspective on sleep quite a bit uh, and also um, a video from jared's youtube channel where he talks about sleep uh, in education uh, we'll provide links for both all of the, all these three recommendations in the show notes. Uh, so that brings us to the end, of ep- the end of the episode. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Jared for joining us once again. Well, guys, thank you. I'm always, I, your excitement makes me excited. So thank you for, <laughs> for having me. Uh, so that's goodbye for now. Bye. 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 <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and don't forget to join us uh, again for another exciting episode next week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and give us a follow on Instagram at the Hippocampus Podcast or on Twitter at Hippocampus underscore pod. And if you've got any thoughts on this episode or ideas for our future discussions, please send us an email, the Hippocampus Podcast at gmail.com. Bye.